You're listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. Over the last few months, Bridie and I have both found these articles or sort of big themes and issues that don't quite fit into the news cycle, but that we really wanted to pick each other's brains about. So we've each chosen to share them with each other, and we're doing a deep dive. And those four topics are going to be recommendations and review culture, masterclasses, Anna Wintour, and... Should we let our kids eat whatever they want? This is Cool Story. I'm Bree Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. So the first one I chose was a guest essay that appeared in the New York Times a few months ago. And it's one that I have thought about almost once a week since I read it. But we didn't get to talk about it at the time when it came out. It's called The Tyranny of the Best by Rachel Connolly. She is a Northern Irish writer who lives in London and I follow a lot of her stuff and really enjoy her writing and I think this is one of the best things that she's ever written. She articulated something I had been thinking for a long time but I hadn't actually put into words what I was thinking. Delicioso. And it was that people are too obsessed with recommendations. I'm sick of recommendations. People- we run a recommendations show. <laughs> Can you specify <laughs> what kind of recommendations that you do? And no, we you- we run like a society and pop culture and current affairs show. We in, run in my a society mind. and culture show. Do we? I don't not know. know. Do we not agree on the type of show that we've been making? <laughs> I just think that recommendation culture has got completely out of control. I can understand when you're buying something like a mattress that you that's really expensive and you're going to have for 10 years and you've got to sleep on it every night and it could really screw your back if you get it wrong. I can understand getting recommendations for that. Obviously, with my curly, thick, coarse hair, I completely understand getting hairdresser recommendations. <laughs> it took me a decade to find a properly good one. But every day I hear people asking for recommendations for what I think of as the most dull stuff, like what's everyone's recommendation for a toaster? What's everyone's recommendation for a backpack? Okay, interjection. How is this different from when I need a toaster and I go and look at what people, like what reviews people have left of this appliance? Well, exactly. Why are you doing that? Because just I just go into the shop and buy, pick a toaster and buy it. But I want to. How much? How different could it be? How different can a toaster be? How much can a toaster stuff up what it's doing? Okay, a toaster is a bad example because I still have a nineteen dollar Kmart toaster that I bought when I moved out of home. Exactly. Here's okay. Here's maybe a medium ground. I think I disagree with you on this. Coffee machine. Expensive. Mm. Something that you're you're going to use every day for a long time. Yeah. And if it's bad, it's really going to stuff up your life. And it's, yeah. I put that into the category of, yes, like mattresses you need and hairdressers you need a recommendation for. Okay, it. so I'm going to need a clear line here. Coffee machine, yes, according to Bridie for recommendations. Toaster, no, Well, how to different Bri- can a toaster, a coffee machine can be very different to and make different coffee to other coffee machines. How different can a toaster be? So this line in Rachel's piece really jumped out, out at me. It's funny that you brought up a toaster because that's exactly what she references in the article. And she writes about how what people are trying to do, and this is what I agree with and I think what irks me, it's like people are trying to optimise every 
single experience. And I think this also goes down a lot to holidays. I can understand, I love researching my holiday. I think it's a really fun part of the holiday when you're researching where you're going to stay and what you're going to do. But there are people I've been on holiday with who before we even go out to a cafe to get a coffee or we're going to go get, you know, we want to grab lunch somewhere, we'll look up the reviews of it. And I just think it takes some of the spontaneity, spontaneity, spontaneity. Yes, thank you. (laughs) And joy out of things when you're so fixated on getting the best experience or the best appliance. And And I think it's been applied too widely. This line in this article said, I'd been wondering about where this culture of ratings and rankings came from and how it came to take over our lives. How even the least exciting consumer choices are framed in terms of elusive state-of-the-art options. And conversely, how necessarily subjective things, novels, colleges, where to live, are increasingly presented as consumer choices for which there is an objective best. Yeah. Okay. This is more meaningful and what I'm really interested in because like I travel a lot for both work and fortunately have traveled a lot just for pleasure and adventure. And there is nothing more exasperating than when you are traveling with someone who has this underlying anxiety that they will like get it wrong in choosing the wrong let alone the wrong, choosing the wrong restaurant or cafe or museum, but like choosing the wrong city out of the 20 options of the cities in that country. And then feeling like they've done it wrong and can like never get it back. And they just like didn't do enough research. And they're trying to sort of control and optimize in a way that is just to my mind, the exact opposite of the point of travel and by extension living. On the flip side of this, and I think this is why it's such an interesting thing to discuss, is that if you do enough research you can have amazing experiences that you might have otherwise missed out on. So you can understand where the mindset starts. Yes. But it's about where it finishes up. I think there's also maybe a way to think about it where, especially for travel and things that are kind of more what like unwieldy or like fluid like that. I'm like, I'm we've we've moved out of the realm of appliances, basically. (laughs) (laughs) But like for something like travel. What I think the research is really valuable for is for just the easy mistakes to avoid. Like if you're going to a museum or you're going to a particular part of a city that has just been in the last 10 years like sort of completely turned into a economic business hub rather than having interesting things. Or if like, the yes, the Latin quarter of this city used to be really amazing but now none of these market stalls are actually run by locals. Like things like common pitfalls to avoid, yes, but – then something weird happens in a lot of people's minds where it gets turned into this like only time for the best mentality. And they want it in every aspect of their life, the best sheets, the best face wash. And I guess part of the reason this has happened, this is is this is like so boring to say, our capitalist society. <laughs> <laughs> and we are overwhelmed, one, with a lot of choice and two, with a lot of shoddy products. I've just realized something here and I'm curious if you feel the same. Something that really fucking shits me about the fact that Goodreads is owned and run by Amazon, well, not run by, but certainly owned by, is that as an author, one, if you're an author, don't go on Goodreads. Do you go on Goodreads for your own books? No, I don't. I'm not particularly – I don't avoid it on purpose. Right. I just – I'm not particularly – 
I don't go on it for other people's books either. No, me like either. it's not yeah. a thing. I don't put much stock in it. In, at but all. like in that yeah. part that you read out the excerpt from this New York Times piece, it included books in there, and it reminded me that. Something I'm happy when my book does is that some people love it and some people hate it. If any of my work is divisive like that, I would rather it be that than just this kind of everybody goes meh. The trouble with having a starred rating, like a rating of X out of five stars, is that if my one of my books has like a three-star rating, you don't know if that's because everybody thinks it's meh or because 50% of people gave it a five-star and 50% of people gave it a one-star. And then that meh three star is what appears on like purchasable links. And I do think it's funny on Goodreads. I like looking up really like really great classics, like say Pride and Prejudice on there or like and the one Middle star. March yeah. and seeing that they have like less than four stars, the aggregate is less than four stars. Yeah. And I look at them like, how can anyone take this site seriously? Yeah. When it's giving like middle March three and a half stars, yeah. like who cares what it says? The funniest, but the funniest review that I've ever read on one of those like book rating review websites, and it went viral. That's why I saw it. I didn't find it myself. Was a review of Pride and Prejudice that said just a bunch of people going to each other's houses and talking. <laughs> <laughs> just a bunch of people visiting each other's houses. Like, so wow, it is actually true. <laughs> like, they've given a bad review, but it is true. But it's also why I don't put a lot of stock in all of that. But you can understand, especially like books is a good example of, I actually don't often anymore walk into the library or a bookshop and pick up a book that I haven't heard of or someone hasn't mentioned to me. The main way that I find books is people referencing them in interviews. Yes, agree. Or friends talking about something and then this year I've tried to avoid too many new releases. I like they're great books and I love them, but I felt like I got stuck in this cycle of just like reading to keep up with what everyone was talking about. Yes. And not actually for my own pleasure. And I obviously read a lot for work as you do as well. But in my pleasure time I was reading like the hot book of the moment. And you know, some of them were fantastic and I love them. But I thought, I feel like I'm just reading what everyone else is reading and Reactive. what's being recommended to me. And I I just want to read some stuff that no one is talking about and I can read it at my own pace and have my own thoughts and opinion about it. And it's funny because you've mentioned before on the podcast when I reference books and you say, you know, you you bring up books I've never heard of. It's really impressive. Like you, And you say I've got a very you – have, You read very widely. Yeah, and well, part of that is on, is on purpose and part of it is this on purpose – thing that I started where I thought I want to read books that not everyone is talking about. Yeah. And it has been amazing for my my reading diet and my life. But I don't walk into a bookshop and just pick a, a random book. It is still through a recommendation cycle that I'm finding these books. And I then do. you wonder what are you missing out on? when? Because do you remember being a teenager? I'm sure you would have done this where you would just walk into a shop in the library and just pick up a book and read it. I Did still you do, do that? that. I still do that with bookstores sometimes. I would say once every month or two, I will deliberately, because I don't like the fact that my work forces me to be engaging with new releases every month. I think I, I, I really resonate with what you just said about like, well, I, in me, the way I would describe it is, is as only ever being reactive rather than thinking to myself what I would choose to and read if I could. And we've just had these two different approaches yeah, yeah, to doing it. Yeah. But mine is still a bit recommendations. Yeah. Fueled. So what's like, what's your takeaway from this article? My takeaway from this article is it articulated that people are too obsessed with 
maximizing and optimizing almost every experience. And that is a result of the stage of capitalism we're in and also internet culture and just having too much choice. So people want to make a good choice. But also I think I was like, I ended up being 50-50 on the article because there is such value in recommendations and research. And I had that thought actually a few weeks ago. (laughs) What? When I chose the restaurant that we went to dinner. Oh my God, Friday, this fucking restaurant Friday took me to. It was unhinged and and not in a good way. And So it was in my mindset, in my anti-recommendations mindset of being like, we have to be spontaneous and there has to be room for just, you know, going in and finding a gem. In my in my mind, that being spontaneous leads to you find these gems and there's so much satisfaction in that and being somewhere that people aren't talking about. But what actually happens is... I get served a martini that has bits of ice floating in it. Yeah, I get served a martini that I could have driven a car after yes. because it was so weak. Yeah. And so I'd seen this restaurant. We, we were going to dinner. We were going to see a movie. We were going to dinner in a suburb that you and I aren't usually in. I had actually been in to get my wisdom teeth out and kept walking past this restaurant and just liked the look of it. And I was like, oh, that looks like really cool and quirky. I love what they've done with the fake flowers over the doorway. That looks fun. <laughs> And then you said, where where should we go to dinner? And I said, oh, this restaurant without looking up anything about it. I was like, it looks fun. Let's go there. And I walked in and I was like, I walked past all these buzzing bars, all these buzzing little food places into this empty restaurant. With like bright fluorescent lights lit up behind walls and walls and walls and walls of empty bottles of some sparkling that no one has ever yeah. heard of. Like they were showing it off like it was Dom Perignon. And I, it was just Dom a spark. Dom Perignon. And it was just this sparkling no one had ever heard of. And we had these martinis full of ice oh. that was so watered down. And the food was actually okay. Yeah, ravioli was fine. Yeah. It was kind of – it was funny at the time, but I actually thought of this article. I didn't tell you that at the time, but I thought of this article. We were laughing about it. Obviously, you were a good sport about me taking you to this, like, deranged two-star two <laughs> restaurant. Um, but I thought of this article and I'm like, this is why people research and this yes. is why people do recommendations because then you end up in an empty restaurant with Brie looking beautiful, <laughs> drinking a martini full of ice. <laughs> oh, my God. So the thing I wanted to raise with you, it's not as specific as an article, but it's something that's been percolating in my mind for a while. Masterclass. Yes, which I know almost nothing about but have seen thousands of ads for. Right, yes. So I was trying to remember how I started on a subscription because it's very expensive. And then I remembered that when we were getting a puppy, and that's our beautiful puppy dog, Judith, who just turned one. So it's coming up and we got her when she was two months old. So anyway, it's been a year. I was trying to find reliable sources of information. This is when we were about to get this puppy off, like how to train a puppy that were not just kind of dry books. I had already read, as you can imagine, cover to cover puppies for dummies. (laughs) And I started getting, fuck, Masterclass are so good at cookies and targeted advertising because I started getting targeted ads for this guy, Brandon. He's like speaks in this very American accent who is apparently this famous master dog trainer. And it was actually fantastic because my husband and I sat down and it was like a fortnight before we were about to get a puppy. And we just started watching a couple of their, you know, whatever, 15 videos 
about basics of like how to train your dog. Wait, so the, he this one guy films 15 videos for Masterclass? Yeah, because oh. they're like 10 to 15 minutes each. And it's oh. like, okay, so, you know, these this is how you do sit. Like the thing that is actually going on in the dog's brain is like following the treat. And so whatever hand motion you pick should like go upwards because with the way a dog's body is, when the head goes up, the butt goes down. Like it just ah. really stuff which I now would consider to be common sense. So the big thing for us, for example, if anyone's listening, wondering how to train a dog, you reward inaction. And even that, just like having someone who knows how the fuck to train a dog, like repeating why that's so huge is that like often you will react to a puppy in particular when they're doing the wrong thing because you're like, ah, stop, like not like that, whatever. But actually when you should- Actually, when you should be giving them lots of attention and lots of treats and lots of pats and positive reinforcement is when that they're, is when they're doing nothing. This is like parenting. Yeah. This is exactly the advice they give you for toddlers. <laughs> Reinforce the good behaviour. Yes. Ignore. And don't just yeah. punish or – well, don't punish the bad behaviour, but don't just react to the bad behaviour. Reinforce it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Puppies and children, once again, not that different. Yes. So – Fast forward a year, I have become the psycho person who watches masterclass videos on the treadmill at the gym. Oh, my God, you're really optimising everything there, Brie. Yeah. And I have listened to – so, you know, I teach writing and I have listened to a lot of the writing ones and have found them to be quite unexpected in the ones that deliver and the ones that don't. For example, I have never read a James Patterson book and I inhaled his masterclass. Oh, really? The masterclasses that are from genre fiction writers in particular are really good because they're very kind of nuts and boltsy. And if like, so I don't write genre fiction, but Balducci, who's that guy, Joe? Something Balducci, James Patterson, um, oh my God, Dan Brown. I just inhaled really? all of these. This sort is of, like Stephen King writing one yeah. of the best books on writing, also a genre fiction writer. Exactly. So those were all really good. What did you and learn the, from them? Um, there's a way in which, and I'll just sort of clump them all together, genre fiction writers are often, in a way I very much admire, more willing to put their ego to one side and really put the reader in the driver's seat. They serve the reader because it's like they're they're always thinking and the conventions of some of these sort of thriller and sort of spy or espionage kind of plot driven rocketing along novels is so much about how to keep the reader turning the page. It's not only about plot. You know, they talk about character and dialogue and detail. Oh, and the commitment these guys have to getting the details right. And they're not details I give a shit about. I don't care about guns, like, but the commitment these guys have to getting all of those details right and honouring their reader is something that I think even the kind of most serious highbrow, like, literary fiction writers there's something there to learn Absolutely, from. Yeah. yeah. But the, the details one- is where you lose a reader. Yeah. If you have a reader who knows, you're trying to tell them this big story and if you have, and they know something about, oh, for example, dog training, and it's, if they see something in the book that you just would never do or would never work, it just takes you completely out of it. That actually just happened with a book I was reading. I won't name it, but she described being pregnant and she described, I know the author has never been pregnant or had children, and she describes being 11 weeks pregnant and how there had been no change in her body. Mm. And it took me completely out of the story. Eight, 
So what you can notice a change? Oh, uh, absolutely! I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, well you would, well you wouldn't know, but you, you know if you were going to write about being pregnant, probably fucking ask find a few out. people yes. about it because it took me right out because I'm like there are so many changes by 11 weeks. Even someone having the quote unquote most easy pregnancy, which almost never happens, there are physical changes in your body by easily by like eight or nine weeks, certainly by 11, and just to. She just had this throwaway line that was like, and, you know, nothing had changed physically and I was completely taken out of the story. Mm. Like almost, you know, that was the point at where I get distracted and be like, oh, I wonder what's on Instagram. Mm. You know, that's when you get taken out of the book. So that detail advice is so good. Yeah. So the two masterclasses I want to mention briefly here and where, where I want to get your feedback on. One is a recommendation basically. I can't believe I'm saying this. I don't know how I started watching it. But for the last 10 trips to the gym on the treadmill, I have been gradually bit by bit consuming Sarah Blakely's masterclass. She's the woman who founded Spanx. Oh, really? Well, she'd have an incredible business mind, I assume. Yes. That, and I tried like another one about sales and I've tried another one about business and another one about like marketing and advertising, Other all of the other ones by dudes. And this one from Sarah Blakely, I rate it. If you are not about being a woman in business, if you are in business, like if you're an entrepreneur, if you're trying to start, turn your hustle into a business or like just struggling to think about whether you want to get into or out of a business, like watch Sarah Blakely's masterclass about Spanx. She is so (laughs) good. But then, you know who's got a masterclass? Chris Jenner. Oh, yeah, I don't know anything about Please that. Please watch one. hers oh. and tell me. Okay. A book that we have previously eviscerated on this show. Oh, I told Atomic Habits. Habits Guy. And that, when I saw that he had a masterclass, that's when I was like, hold up. I want to talk to Bridie about this. What is going on here where there's like, a kind of legitimacy presumed once you like can teach a masterclass and like there's sort of what I'm uncomfortable by is this kind of like flattening of wildly varying levels of actual reliable expertise and some kind of institutional reverence that people have towards like in our, if you haven't heard the episode where we talk about James Clear and this book Atomic Habits, it's like he, there was research in there that was just misrepresented and it's not a good sound book based on sound principles. But what was his masterclass about? I don't know. Habits. I'll find oh, it. But I oh, just so it was like, about habits because I was going to say if his masterclass was about writing a best-selling book, well, yeah. that's actually a really difficult masterclass to do because as you small not- habits that make a big impact on your life. Oh, okay, it's exactly so well, then his it, book. well, it's just his book. Well, then it's horseshit because I, when you first said his name, I thought that it was going to be how to write a best-selling book, which would be incredibly difficult to teach a class on because, as you and I know from being in the industry for so long, mm. sometimes a book takes off and sometimes it doesn't, and you can know the elements in why a book has taken off, but you don't exactly know why it then went on to sell three million mm. copies. But that's what I would expect his expertise to be in. Like his expertise is in habits, creating habits. I just, yeah. If you want to listen to a decent evisceration of that book, the podcast called "It's If Books Could Kill, that was that episode, right? They go a de- they do a deep dive into um, Atomic Habits. 
But I don't know. I find, Do you think I'm like a psycho for just like running on a treadmill with watching masterclasses? I think you're a psycho but not for those reasons. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you're – like but like, you know me. Would I ever – I never judge anyone for that. Yeah, get more thing. judgmental, yeah, Brady. Yeah, you, I think you want me to be more judgmental and I am. I have plenty of bad personality traits and bad characteristics about me, but I think one of my good ones is that I'm very good at not I, at not judging people, mm. I think. So I think it's fine. Like whatever gets you going on the treadmill, like what would be the ideal thing that I would think that you would watch on a treadmill? I have no opinion on it. Mm. So good on you. I think it's a very funny picture. Like it's like the ultimate optimization yeah. thing to, to be exercising and also teaching yourself at the same time. Oh, I just get so fucking bored. <laughs> yeah. So I hardly ever run on a treadmill because I'm like, I love running outside and I listen to podcasts when I'm doing that. But on a treadmill, I probably, which this summer is going to be really hot. So I assume I'll run. Yeah. On a treadmill. I can't run outside after yeah. like whatever. Fucking so you got to go on a treadmill. Yeah. So anyway. what would I watch? You know what I'd be watching? This is why I never judge you. Do you know what I would be watching? What? Taylor Swift videos. The Real Housewives of New York. Oh. The Kardashians. Right. So the thing that I know about Masterclass is I've seen Kris Jenner doing her behind the scenes on the Kardashians episode. Hers is on, I think it's on personal branding. Yeah, which would be great. Like She, she would be. She'd yeah. be an ultimate teacher. When I saw her teaching that Masterclass on the Kardashians, I thought, one, great idea, and two, there is a person with real expertise. Yeah. Okay, the third topic that we both wanted to talk with each other about is basically the phenomenon that is Anna Wintour. And I'm going to segue this by saying that I have also watched Anna Wintour's Masterclass. Yeah, I was about to ask you because that was the one that got advertised really heavily to me Yes, was Anna Wintour's. That was the one time I considered purchasing Masterclass because I find her so fascinating Yep, and incredibly strategic. Yes. Very interesting, successful person. And I thought, wow. And also an incredibly chic person. And I was like, Masterclass is a chic? I didn't realise. I was surprised when Wintour did record her Masterclass because it's from a few years ago now. And now Masterclass is kind of like a safe bet. Like it's so kind of pro and established. But a few years ago it was still like, oh, who's going to agree to do a Masterclass? What did she talk about? They must pay a lot. What did she yeah. talk about in yeah. it? They must have paid a huge amount. And she talked about obviously – fashion but she also what I liked is that she also talked about magazine publishing and like sort of publishing under like Condé Nast and she talked about leadership and then she also talked about fashion design there were um, a couple out of however many there were let's say 15 episodes a couple that were specifically would I remember I watched them anyway because I was stuck on the fucking treadmill but if you were a young designer would have been like specifically targeted towards you because, you know, so much of the work she does is about that um, Young Designers Fund. But what I found the masterclass, Anna Wintour's masterclass, really good for was as a kind of paratext to augment the reading experience of Anna, the biography by Amy O'Dell that and, we've both read. And what did you get out of her masterclass? There is a way in which I felt O'Dell – very evenly handedly, like very fairly borderline generously made it clear how much Anna Wintour tries to kind of not control the narrative around herself but to maintain a distance between herself and sort of the public. And when you watch her masterclass, 
it is very, very clear that even in these like hours and hours of recording, she is still maintaining that distance. And she is so selective about the anecdotes she shares. And she has obviously completely from top to tail vetted every single thing that will appear in those videos. It's just, it's like the picture that gradually accumulatively gets painted in the Odell biography is like the proof of it is the masterclass. Is she wearing sunglasses the whole time? Yep. Wow. Oh, she takes them off once, I think, but then I'm going to check that. But my my recollection is that she just wears the sunglasses the whole time. She I'm was wearing the right sunglasses now. in all of the masterclass advertisements that yep. I saw and I thought that was quite Because obviously they choice. would have loved to get her without them and she didn't agree. So in the, like, let's call it the hero image, she appears without them. Oh, no. Oh, I'm completely wrong. She's not wearing them. Oh. <laughs> but this is the image of her but so hang on, hang on. Brain. This is yeah, and also this is gonna sound very, very specific, but it is specific. Her bangs, she's got a very heavy front fringe, and her bangs have been trimmed so that they come right down past her eyebrows, such that her face appears to be lit in a way that you can watch comfortably for a long time, but her eyes are actually not well lit. Wow. That's what I must have been thinking of is that like, it's obviously part of the agreement that she couldn't wear her sunglasses or they didn't want her to, but she still, for whatever reason, yeah, found a way. To hide her eyes. Yep. So what was, I? so we both read the Amy O'Dell biography of Anna, which I thought was an fantastic piece of journalism me too the subject is so interesting Mm. but just the book was so well researched so well written so well laid out and amy was so great at just letting the facts speak for themselves there's barely any commentary from amy in that book it is just her writing things the way they are her access like it's funny because it's not technically an authorized biography but it was. But it is unofficially authorised because yes. Anna gave people – Anna didn't talk to Amy, but Anna gave people, and some of them huge names like Serena Williams, yep. permission to talk to Amy mm-hmm. for this biography. One of the little things that I found very funny about it was after the book came out, Amy did these 50 questions with Vogue. You mean Anna Wintour did the 50 questions? Anna Wintour yes. did 50 questions, which is something she's done. It, that was the second time she'd done it. She doesn't do them very often. That was mm. the second time. And there, it's a series that Vogue does where they come in and they ask a famous person 50 questions. That person obviously already knows the questions that are going to be answered. They're, and it's done all in one take. And to me, it was very clear that she was doing the 50 questions video as a way to refute some things that were said in the book and very small things yep. such as what her, I think she refuted what her grandchildren call her. It was, she said they call her something that was different to what the book had said. Yeah, there was some weird little yeah. detail like that. And yeah. the other one was Amy said a very funny detail in the book I remember is that Anna, this isn't the funny bit, Anna essentially doesn't eat. Yeah. Which was very clear in the book. Oh, yeah. And is very specific about what she eats. And she doesn't like, in the book, it says that she doesn't like fruit and veg. She essentially just like eats a bit of red meat and likes, and really, really milky coffee, which I found funny. And in the book, her garden designer had wanted to do a vegetable patch. And she had said no because she's not interested in vegetables. And one of the things she refuted was in the video, she said that she grew tomatoes in it. 
Because in the book it had also said her salad order was burrata salad, which no. is just burrata, basil, and tomatoes yeah. with no tomatoes. Yeah. So just burrata, cheese, and basil. And so I thought that was an in- – and it's such an Anna way to refute. Like she'll never make a statement. No. She'll never do an interview It's responding. that distance thing yeah, again. Yeah. And it was her maintaining the distance. And I t- also took away from the book. Like I loved reading this biography, the parts that were about building your career – Career, being strategic, career progression, and also how to manage. And there were things that they said in the book, which Amy wrote in the book, which I found really interesting, which is one of the things that when she became editor of Vogue is that she made like six or seven hour meetings. They have these meetings where they look at all clothes coming in for the season and select what they might want to photograph for the magazine. And they used to go for six or seven hours and Anna drastically reduced them mm. to something to something like 45 minutes or an hour and a half. And I admire that. Like, don't waste time. And also one of the things I took away from that book that I still always remember, even though I do not have a job anywhere near as prestigious or important or stressful as being the editor-in-chief of Vogue, is um, being decisive. Mm. And she in the book, Anna had told someone, people like decisions. So they would show her a layout on the magazine, like two, two or three different layouts, and she just decides immediately that one. Yep. And I took that away as well. Like, you know, there obviously is a time for deliberating and thinking deeply, but there are decisions where you should just make the decision and move on. That comes through in the masterclass pretty clearly as well. She talks about just making a decision and moving on. And even if it's like the sort of wrong decision or if you get criticised for it, just move on. She just yeah. sort of has this charging sort of energy but you haven't mentioned we when we were both reading it we were messaging each other about something or other and you said that you had like changed your style like your personal style from oh, reading that, that you yeah I became the Anna Wintour of Southern Sydney <laughs> <laughs> yes I did I forgot I was thinking all about the book and not about my my personal reaction so I read the book um, and I think that this played a part in it. I read the book when I had COVID mm-hmm. and I live with my husband and my two children and I isolated from them in the bedroom, which is like a nice little holiday. Uh, so, yeah, I just listened to them screaming at dinner, bath, bed, and I just got to lie there reading Anna Wintour's biography. And That actually sounds fucking excellent. Yeah, it yeah. was great. Until day four, it was great. First three days were great. And um, I read her book and there's a lot about how she dresses, how she selects what she dresses. And and I got so inspired that I completely changed my entire wardrobe. I loved that. I bought new Gucci glasses. Yeah. I bought a Kenzo top because she likes Kenzo. And those incredible Versace loafers. And Yes, and the Versace loafers. Like yeah. I went bulls. I maxed out a credit card. You got card. the shoppies. Yeah, you got yeah the- I got the shoppies. <laughs> I got the shoppies bad and I did this all online and genuinely I bought like a new pair of pants, all these different shirts, a dress, I got new glasses and I got my Versace loafers which still get tons of compliments and, yeah, it made me completely change my look. And then I was at um, the work mid-year party saying to everyone, I've decided to become the Anna Wintour of Southern Sydney, like really straight face. It's completely transformed the way that I'm dressing myself. <laughs> So, yeah, that was my big takeaway from the book. What about yours? My big takeaway was that people still, even after how many decades she has been gradually increasing her influence and reach, people still chronically underestimate just how influential she is. People still think that she works in the fashion industry. She is 
like what the Odell biography made clear is that like directors will consult her when they're considering casting a film. Serena Williams talks to her before blah, blah, blah. Like before Tennis Man. Serena talked to her before retiring, didn't she, about when best to do it. To do it. And, yeah, and she was one of the people she consulted. Anna Wintour's has a reach that extends to like every industry she wants it to. And I still think that it's extremely, extremely blatantly sexist that she gets – sort of pigeonholed as though she's only in fashion or only even in magazines. The other thing too I want to briefly mention, I mean, you you mentioned the fact that it's sort of clear from the biography that she just doesn't eat. I interviewed Amy O'Dell for about this book and I got the impression, I mean, I adore the book and I think O'Dell was so rigorous and fantastic, but I got the impression, I asked O'Dell about how much Winter, how much damage Winter had done in terms of really spearheading the move towards what I now refer to as scrawn porn and just the heroin chic sort of thin ideal and that it's something that Wintour herself has obviously struggled with since she was very, very young. But she is like sort of suffering with that to some degree but then has also gone on to wreak absolute devastation on now multiple generations in particular of women who have just been crushed under this impossible ideal. And I asked Odell some variation of like, how can we quantify how responsible Wintour as an individual is for the mass negative effect this has had? And Odell, I think that was the first time Odell had been asked that question. Whereas to me, from reading that book, it was just so clear. And what did she say? Well, just that, yeah, that, like she, well, what is there to say? Like Winter herself clearly doesn't eat really or certainly doesn't eat But it's well so difficult to hold then, one person responsible for that. But I, I disagree. I think that's what, like normally, no, but something that the biography made clear was just how much control Winter has and has historically had over a American Vogue, but in the last decade has had over Vogue worldwide. She's not even actually editor-in-chief of American Vogue anymore. She's like has a bigger title for like creative creative director or whatever it is for like Vogue worldwide. And she's a micromanager and an absolute control freak. Actually, she is one of a small number of people who we can point to and say, you are responsible in significant part for this becoming – a source but, of great pain for millions but of people. I I think that she has some responsibility, but she what culture was she marinating in when she was a teenager? Yeah, I'm that saying made both that is way true as well. I'm saying both is true. Yeah, like, like she, she suffers. It was and already she there. Makes she suffer. didn't. Well, yeah, she does contribute to the suffering, but she didn't start that movement. No, like, she talks about. Didn't she talk about growing up when like Twiggy was already? Yeah, a thing? exactly. In the sixties, it's it's been a thing since. You know, the 20s. Yeah. Really. But, but this is just my thing, right? Yeah. Is that it's like most of us are to some degree both. Like we're suffering under a system we cause us others and then to suffer. And yeah. the system. Yeah. I just think that with Wintour, it's a pretty rare example of someone who has done a lot of obvious damage. They also had that extraordinary anecdote in the book about her asking for a baby's neck was it a neck yeah. fat to be body a baby to be body shopped essentially yeah. uh, body shopped photoshopped photoshopping neck fat off of a baby and the things she said the final thing is that, that i'll mention that's just really obvious is that she like told oprah winfrey oprah winfrey 
to lose whatever it was, like it was 10 a, pounds, it was a, 15 no, pounds. No, it was a big amount of weight. Wasn't it like 20 pounds? Yeah, it was It huge. was a big amount of weight like to lose. huge amount of weight within a few weeks before Winfrey's Vogue cover shoot so that, yeah, so that she would be quote unquote ready for her big cover shoot. Like it's just, Green. that is, yeah, there are many, many things over many, many years where you can actually point to someone and say, actually, this is coming from you. And which segues nicely into the last thing that we wanted to talk about, which was this article that was in The Guardian. It was actually in The Observer, but that publishes on The Guardian website called What If We Let Our Kids Eat What They Want? A Radical New Take on the Weight Debate. Mm. I found this article so illuminating and so interesting. And I wanted to talk about it with you because obviously the headline is about what if we let our kids eat whatever they want. And so it it is to a degree about parenting and we're going to link all these articles in our show notes. But it's also very much about like the culture that you and I both grew up in and the impacts that it had on us. When I say us broadly, I mean like women in the Western world and their approach to food and how they think about themselves and how they think about their weight. And some of the, like when the headline you think that's so radical, your kids can't just eat whatever they want. Mm. But she, but it's about a woman called Virginia Soul Smith who wrote a book called Fat Talk, Coming of Age in Diet Culture. And she basically makes the argument that, you know, you should put obviously home-cooked good food in front of your kids. But if your kids want to eat the chocolate in the fridge or the snacks in the cupboard, you should just let them eat it? That's not what I took from it. What did you take from it? Well, maybe not the thing I took from it overall, but no, actually this is the thing I took from it overall, which is if you're about to be stressed about something your kid is going to eat and you're going to communicate that stress to them in some way, would you actually be stressed about that if you somehow knew that your kid would always be slim? Yeah, well, that's what what she's coming back to when she's saying like saying how you can not give your kids a hang up about food is like what are you actually hung up about? Is it whether it's healthy or not mm. or whether it's going to make, make them, them fat? fat. Yeah. And mo- and mostly and if you actually do stop yourself and ask yourself that question, it's always it's about, the latter. Yeah, not actually how healthy I do want to just mention here too, if you're listening, so this, like what we're talking about is a Guardian article that's like interviewing an author called Virginia Soulsmith about Virginia Soulsmith's book, Fat Talk. And I just want to mention that Soulsmith also has a really good substack called Burnt Toast, where if you oh, want- Oh, really? Like, I haven't yeah, read it. If you want, um, and it's a mixture of free and paywalled, and if you kind of want a bit of an introduction to what her work is about, it's like a good place to find And it. she works with like epidemia. It's not just dietitians who can be very questionable that she works yeah. with. She works with like epidemiologists yeah. and those kind. It's just, it seems so rigorous and so well-researched. And so what, yeah, so what did you take away from it? Well, just that thing that like I, I mean, I don't have kids. Yeah, so but, I'm, I, but, but you've had an eating disorder. Yeah. Which of I'm not yeah. revealing a secret there. <laughs> Imagine if I was just telling around your business. <laughs> But this is why I was so interested in what you thought about this because I have kids but I've never had an eating disorder. And this is kind of a discussion mm. that you and I have had yeah. briefly before because you have had an, an eating disorder and we have discussed before mm. 
why you and not me? Yes. Like what are the factors in the way? And we can't really get to the bottom of no, it no. because we marinated in the same culture. Yeah. And something I was thinking about when I was reading this was that I did not get any of my, the like pressure that a lot of people feel from their mums. My mum never pressured me in that way at all. For me personally, like the call was not coming from inside the house. My family love food and yes my family I would say does have an emotional relationship with food in terms of like we gather around meals and we love all types of foods but I just what I wrote about that like difficulty I had was the essay called beauty and what I found really really shocking that I was reminded of when I was reading this article was how many women told me in emails and during the book tour that the first sort of um, stress and pressure they felt to lose weight happened when they were children and it came from their mothers. And it was just so devastating. When I think about how much I struggled with that stuff, even without that, like into going back to what we were saying when we were talking about Anna Wintour, how you can both suffer under this system and then cause others to suffer under this system. I just heard from so many women whose mums were that for them. Their mums were clearly suffering from their own generation's shit, but then their mums, like, put that on their own daughters. It was just um, – and the, these daughters, was, you know, that this is what they told me. They'll spend their whole lives kind of trying to unpick that damage. It was just devastating. And is truly devastating in every sense of the, of the word. What do you think it takes or how do you have – not you specifically, I mm. mean you as in the, the universal you. Yes. How do you get a good relationship with food and your body in adulthood? Okay, so here's the thing that the, the simplified conclusion I came to after having toured beauty for a bit and heard from a lot of people. It sort of depends on whether you want to go down this like these are not – I'm just going to use these terms because it helps to simplify them in this way right now. You're either in the sort of body neutral camp or you're in the body positivity camp. And to me, there's like these two avenues where you either lean into food and you lean into like exercise and you find ways to sort of engage with it that are still just like better and like kind of healthier and more about well-being. Or you try to really, really minimize how much mental space you give to it and feel you try to minimize the feelings you have about your body or the feelings and effort that you put into food and exercise. So for me, because I am actually like a huge foodie, I love eating and I adore drinking and I'm actually like I'm a big activities person. I like activities too. For me, I made it of like very – I allowed it to take up a bigger part of my life, but really, really consciously made it so that the bigger part of my life it takes up is positive. Whereas for a lot of people, the body positivity movement does not resonate with them. It doesn't work for them. And what they care about is body neutrality, where they're not even thinking about their bodies anymore. And they're not thinking about like every single meal and the composition of it. Does that make sense? There are these sort of like two overall roots that seem to be the way most of the adults I have spoken to manage to kind of dig their way out of it. It reminds me of a line I read from a woman who had had been on a diet, been put on a diet essentially. I think her mum took her to Weight Watchers when she was like nine years old. And a line, I remember a line that she said, 
um, I think in in an interview where she said in her 30s she realised, so she wanted to be body neutral and she went the body neutral path and she was like, I had to imagine the kind of life that I could lead if I was just in the body that I was in. Yeah. Which I found so powerful and something that whenever, you know, I have never had an eating disorder and I love food and have generally a very positive relationship or semi-neutral, positive, positive relationship, my body, but, um, the only millennial without anxiety. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, after having children, your body changes. So it's almost like puberty again, Mm. like your body changes so quickly. And if, if my body had changed that much over like a decade, I wouldn't have noticed and I would have been fine, but it's that you get this huge change within essentially, you know, nine months and you have the baby and then you do you just don't have the body that you had before. It's changed in in numerous ways, not just weight gain and all that. But when I when I read that line, it's really stuck with me. And if I do ever, you know, look at photos of me when I was 25 or think about what my body used to be like or start considering not having dessert, which I only ever consider it never actually happened, which is good, <laughs> which is like the yeah. good outcome because I love dessert. It's yeah. one of my daily pleasures is dessert. Amen. I just always think of that line, like imagine the life that you could lead if you were just in the, if you just had the body that you have. And what that means to me is like, imagine all the things I can enjoy and all the other things I can think about Mm. that aren't the boring thing that is my body. But being the one who has children it's, yeah, like what did you think when you were reading like this article specifically? I, like, I do you love let some your boys eat well, whatever because, they want. Yeah, oh no, not that they could eat whatever they want. I just I felt positive about how what I'm teaching them and mm. how I feed them. And basically what I took away from it is not to beat myself up when they are having a lot of chocolate or you, you know, if they are if we, it, like I'm not going to fight them over the marshmallow. I'm also not going to fight them over the sausage, which, um, you know, which is dinner. And my dad actually gave me incredible advice when I had my first kid and he said, which uh, the transformative advice for him and he did almost all the cooking for us and had four children was someone said to him, no healthy child has ever starved themselves to death or no healthy child has ever starved themselves. And what dad took from that was that if he served us dinner and we didn't eat any of it or we rejected some of it, he didn't care. Mm. He was like, "What? you're not going to starve, whatever. And it is amazing how much one kids can eat sometimes and two, how much they can't eat, how they can just keep going and going and going and then not even eat the sausage, like not eat any of their dinner, just reject the entire thing. It is wild. Like their physiology is wild. And so I took from that is like, I'm not going to argue, like if they're going to have a meltdown over having a marshmallow, I just, just have the marshmallow, whatever. I don't care. Mm. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to expend my emotional energy on this. And also if you refuse the dinner that I make you, I'm not going to argue with you over this. I'm not going to have the fight with you over this fine. Like, and so my big thing that was already in place, but I feel like this article really gave me confidence and helped me know that I'm on the right track is like, I just don't argue with them over food. Like they're not going to get chocolate for dinner every night. Like they're going to get the option of. When you you say you don't argue with them, is it like, will you eat this or you go to bed hungry or that you let them go and have peanut butter on bread? No, I never offer them alternatives because I think that that's a bad approach because I, I don't want them to think they've got that I'm, like I'm a caterer yeah, and they're ordering from a menu. No, they just don't eat. Yeah. They just don't eat. Yeah. And I save the dinner because it can be reheated the next day. 
And if, you're like, great. Yeah, yeah. Wish, I wish they refuse more and, often. And if at bedtime they're like, I'm hungry, I'm like, okay, well, you can yeah. you can have this. But I don't punch. And I still let them, like we love dessert in my house, and I still let them have it. Whether or not they eat their dinner, I still let them have a treat before bed. Oh, <gasps> wow. No, I yeah. wouldn't. So, oh, you wouldn't. Well, I've cooked. You eat. And you can't. Otherwise, I think that they would then, if they're not that hungry, then they would just wait and eat the treat. No, well, you just, I'm just not going to fight with them over the sausage. Yeah. And bedtime is such a different ritual to dinner time. I'll fight time. them. <laughs> <laughs> you could fight them, yeah. But um, no, like, well, because I just don't want to punish them. Like food's so complicated, right? That's true. And so it's I don't want to punish not, them. See, I'm doing yeah. it already. Like, You're not doing anything wrong. Like you'll figure it out for yourself because – Definitely before I had kids, I would be like, uh, if you don't eat dinner, you're definitely not getting ice cream. Yeah. These are all things you learn along the way and be like, I can't punish. Like you genuinely don't care about that food. You're not rejecting me or making a stand. You just don't feel like eating it, mm. whatever. Like, And it's not that often. Like genuinely they're hungry at the end of the day. Yeah. And the, you know, the Mars bar, the mini Mars bar before bed is not going to make a huge difference mm. to appetite or whatever. I connect the treat with them going to bed. As the treat for you. Yeah. Well, no, but then, no, this is how I get, yeah, this is how I get them to go to bed. You want a treat? What are you oh. going to do? And they both go, brush teeth, go to bed. I'm like, so if you have your treat now, and they're like, brush teeth, go to bed. And it's the beginning of bedtime. We're back to puppy training. Yeah, We've come exactly. Full so I connect the treat with bedtime rather than with eating their dinner. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, but there's a whole school of thought that, has me as a bad mum for even calling it a treat. Treat. That's what I was yeah. about to say is that well, I, I don't care though because it is a treat. Yeah, it's a treat for right? me. Like when I have my dessert, it's a treat. When I'm sitting watching the Kardashians eating my Ferrero Rocher ice cream, that's a freaking treat. I should say the the sort of really brief rule of thumb that I find useful in thinking about food is what Michael Pollan says. And I've watched maybe a third of his masterclasses. It was much more American than I was ready to sign up for in terms of food production, economics and ethics. Anyway, but he says, and he's always said, eat food, not too much, mostly vegetables. And I, for me personally, that has like absolutely been a really great, just quiet Northern star. Oh, really? I yeah. find that depressing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I find the first one in particular, like, and I love eating less meat and I love eating more vegetables. Um, and the first one where he says eat food is just the difference between like, is this like whatever it is, like it can be dairy and or like meat and protein, but like is it actual food instead of like random like processed things with a million and snack and my, yeah. and snacking yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff. Eat yeah. food means eat a meal. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Actually just and so I guess that's why it works for me, because of those two avenues that I talked about, for me, thinking about it more in a positive way is like the better, like just the option that has suited me more. Because I love cooking. I I have loved talking to you about all these yeah. big brain topics. And it was such a good way to get to talk about all these. Super interesting topics that are always around us that and we don't so get interconnected. To, and so interconnected and that we don't get to talk about usually on the podcast when yeah. being tied into the news cycle. Yeah. Thank you, Bridie. <laughs> Thank you, Brie. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. We really love it when you leave us a rating and or a review. It makes a big difference. On Instagram, we are at Cool Story Brie Bridie. This podcast was produced by Sam Devonport and recorded on Gadigal Land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.